You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 today. And we've been in this Advent series called The Gift Swap. And uh, we've got the logo up behind me, and, and hopefully you've seen that on uh, Facebook or Instagram or various places that we've been putting that. But there's a tagline on this logo that I, I don't know if you've paid attention to or not as you've seen it over the last four weeks. And the tagline is this, the gift swap, the most unfair, unexplainable, unjust gift exchange of all time. And the series was built around this idea of if you've ever been to a, a work party or perhaps a family party and they do this gift swap kind of a thing and where you get to open a gift but then you get maybe the chance to swap it out or trade it out for something else and, and usually somebody in that equation comes out on the short end of the stick. Uh, somebody comes out with a Chia Pet, somebody else comes out with an iPod or something along those lines, right? And I, I know iPods aren't even a thing. I'm already dating myself. I understand that. But uh, you know, usually somebody comes out on the, the wrong end of that kind of a gift swap. And we wanted to talk about that to this week and, and over the last few weeks to think about this reality that the swap that Jesus made, his life for ours, was really the most incredible gift swap there ever was. But not only incredible, but it was unfair and unexplainable and unjust. It was unfair because if we think about fairness, we typically think about everybody being treated equally. That's why when kids don't get their way, they holler out, that's not fair. And we tend to think of that as well. But yet Jesus took a treatment for us He took a punishment for us. He stood in as our substitute. And it was not fair to him. Because it was not equal to who he was. It's an unexplainable gift swap. That's actually going to be the the focus of the message today. So I'm going to return to that one in a moment. It was an unjust gift exchange. The word just has to do with punishment and penalties and and those things being the punishment fit the crime, if you will. And Jesus' death was completely unjust in comparison to the life that he lived. And yet he did that for us. And it becomes tough for us to explain this sometimes. It's unexplainable in this sense. What would ever motivate a holy God, a holy Father, a holy Son, a holy Spirit to come up with this sort of plan to redeem mankind? To offer up one who would be sinless, who would not be deserving of the punishment he would take, who, who would leave the, the glories of heaven and come to earth and become one of us? What, what would ever motivate them to come up with this plan? Because the reality of it is, for us, myself included, trading my life for the the life of the perfect Christ doesn't seem like that makes sense. Him trading his life for my life doesn't make sense. We tend to think we're not that bad. The 18th century philosopher Rousseau was the one who um, speculated that all human beings are essentially born good, 
that it's just the social construct around them, it's the, the, the income inequality, it's the, the businesses, it's the politics, it's the, the social settings that eventually begin to turn us bad, but we're all born inherently good, and our nature gets corrupted by the world around us. That is a complete opposite of what we would believe to be full Christian doctrine, which is that none of us are born good, none of us are born moral, None of us are born righteous. I was, I was saved at the age of seven. And at the age of seven, I was a liar. And I was a thief. And I was selfish. And I was self-centered. And I didn't honor my father and my mother. And I was jealous. And I was envious. And those are just all the things I could remember this week. And according to the Ten Commandments in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and all other places in Scripture, what those things that I just described about myself at age 7 meant was that I was not worthy of the exchange of the Christ child. At least not in a human view. At least not in a worldly view. But in God's eyes, He demonstrated His love for us. Jesus demonstrated his love for us. The Holy Spirit demonstrated his love for us in this plan of redemption and reconciliation. You might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, but yeah, I still wasn't that bad. I still wasn't that bad before I, I knew Jesus. Let's let the scripture speak for itself today. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Follow along with me if you will. Paul writes, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been, now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The scripture makes it clear for our first point today, who we were, or if we do not yet know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who we are before him. There's none of us who can claim we are good or that we were good. You might, you might be able to hold yourself up to another person and say, well, I'm better than them, but other people are not the standard. God's holiness and God's righteousness are the standard. And against that, we all fall short. In the very beginning of chapter 5, Paul talks about the things that we have. He says we things like we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He, he actually begins that section on a very positive scheme, but he then trans, transforms it here, beginning in verse 6 to reminding us of who we were, or if you are not yet one with Christ, who you are. And he says we were weak, verse 6. 
Weak here is not necessarily physical weakness. Weak here has to do with moral character. Weak here has to do with choosing right from wrong. Weak here has to do with making right moral decisions. And the word here is a word that specifically means helpless or without the power or without the strength to live a moral or righteous life. In other words, it looks like a very uh, innocent word in the English while we were weak, but it is a very strong word in the Greek because it means we did not have the power to save ourselves. More so than that, it means we didn't often even have the understanding that we needed to be saved, that we lived under a lie, that we were good enough. He says, while we were weak, there in verse 6, he continues, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is not simply someone who lacks religion, but this is someone who is actively opposing God. In Psalm 36, beginning verses 1 through 4, listen to what the psalmist says. Transgression or sin speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his sin cannot be found out and hated, meaning he lives a life of deceit, thinking that his sin won't be found. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed, sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The psalmist there writes what Paul writes here just in greater detail, that we were ungodly. That without Christ, all are not just lacking in a religious form, but are actively opposing God in our sinful nature. And the word is used here to help us understand that it is all persons. It's not Christ died for some who were ungodly, but the others were godly enough. It's a word that's used to describe that all of mankind that has ever been, that that will ever be, was ungodly. But yet Christ came. Verse 8 says we were sinners. Simple enough. Not measuring up to God's standard of holiness. Not measuring up to to his standard of righteousness. Again, not really even understanding that we needed to acknowledge that there was a moral or righteous standard. I've mentioned Andy Stanley's little short book several times over the last four years. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough. And for anybody that's ever thought, well, I'm good enough, or for anybody that's ever had a friend or a family member say, well, I think I'm good enough, you need to purchase this book, and you need to read it, and you need to share it with them. Because if you think you're good enough, if I think I'm good enough, whose good enough standard do we use? Yours? Mine? Someone in New York? Someone in Texas? Someone in North, North Dakota? Whose standard of good do we use? The only standard that's worthy of using is the standard of God and His holiness and His righteousness. And Paul says we were sinners. Unable to enter into that standard. And then he says there in verse 10, we were enemies. A personal enemy of God. It's worth noting here, uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked about trading our, our hate for love, we looked at, among other passages, that Matthew 5, 43 and 44 passage where Jesus talks about loving your enemy. Not, not hating them, but loving them. It's worth noting it's the same word there for enemy that it is here. 
Meaning to, for Paul to write and for other places in the scripture to also speak to us that we were enemies of God without Jesus is not just describing us as someone who's just not quite a friend. It's describing us as enemies in opposition, in defiance, in rebellion against God. And so he says, that's who you were, or that's who you are today if you're not in Christ. But now in Christ, there becomes something different. We, we've looked at it a little bit with those first few passages there, in, or verses there in, verse, in chapter 5, that we're justified, we have peace with God, we have access by faith. But I really want to focus today for this message, as we talk about trading our lives for the life of Christ, on this understanding of what it means to be reconciled. Look there again, if you will, with me at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, meaning while we were in rebellion, while we were in opposition, while we were actively opposing God, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? The word reconciled is a word that means restored. It's a word really specifically that speaks to relationship, that a, a, a relationship with a human being, for example, that you might have, a family relationship, a friend relationship, if you were to have that relationship broken with that human being, uh, somebody makes somebody else mad, somebody else does something to somebody else, and that gets broken, when you make up that relationship, that human relationship, you become reconciled with that person. But I want us to see there's a difference here with this reconciliation to God. Because in our human terms, we can forgive people, but not restore the relationship. Sometimes we forgive a, a friend, sometimes we forgive a family member, sometimes we forgive an acquaintance, and, and we say it's water under the bridge, we're done with it, but we don't actively pursue restoring that relationship. And what God did is that the cross, which is what we're going to remember here in just a moment, the, the life of Christ, what he did was he forgave, but he forgave with the intent of restoring his relationship to us now and forever. That yes, the cross has to do with forgiveness, and yes, the cross has to do with us, uh, our sins being wiped away, but more so than that, it has to do with us being reconciled to God, restored our relationship to God. And Paul says this, this way in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I've used that passage before, and I've talked about in verse 20 there where he talks about reconciling. He actually uses a more emphatic word for reconciling there. And it is a word in Colossians 1.20 that means to not only restore the relationship, but to restore the relationship to a previous state of harmony. Or a previous state of peace. And I've shared with you before, there was only one time that mankind was in a perfect state of harmony and peace with God. And that was Adam and Eve before the fall. So I want you to think about that for a moment. That God's intent through his son, his intent through sending the child, 
to be born, who would become a man, who would die, who would be resurrected. His intent when that was, yes, to bring us forgiveness, yes, to bring us redemption, yes, to, to wipe our sins clean and wipe the slate clean and make us new, but it was also to restore us, to reconcile us to a relationship with him that was only experienced once in all of human history. I hope you see how powerful that is. I hope you see how deep that truth is. That is, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to get ourselves out of this, this long-standing tradition of thinking that being saved means I get to go to heaven. Being saved means God is with me now. Being saved is that my relationship with God is restored and reconciled now. And that God's intent may not always be mine, but at least God's intent is that my relationship be as pure with Him and as open with Him and as intimate with Him as it was in the garden before the fall of man. It's so, so overwhelming. That God would look on me who by age seven was a liar and a thief and selfish and dishonoring to my parents and everything else that I was then and everything that I tend to be now. When I let my sinful flesh dwell up in me. That he would look at me and say the way to redemption, the way to reconciliation is through my son. Let's think about it again in human terms. You might forgive the offense of someone, but you might not seek to restore that relationship. Or you might forgive the offense and you might restore the relationship, but decide that you're going to restore the relationship, but with boundaries. We're not going to hang out anymore. I'll be cordial. I'll say hi when you say hi. We cross Kroger Isle. You know, we'll do some small talk, some chat, but... And, you, and, and you're forgiven, and it's wiped clean, but we're not really going to, yeah. But there's a third way, to forgive and to reconcile and restore. And now all of a sudden, you're having dinner. And now all of a sudden, your kids are playing together again. And now all of a sudden, maybe you even go on vacation with one another. Most of us, in the times that our human relationships have been fragmented, would never opt for option three. We might opt for option one. Well, I'll forgive them. We're just not going to hang out. We might opt for option two. Well, I'll forgive them and I'll be cordial and we'll, we'll communicate every now and then. But most of us would rarely opt for option three. That I forgive you so much and you forgive me so much that, that our relationship not only gets reconciled and restored, but gets reconciled and restored to a place where it was before the offense happened. And yet that is what God did for us in Jesus Christ. He restored even all the way to what it was like before sin. And Paul says it this way in verse 10. Now that we've been reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is the meaning of trading our life for his it's really probably better understood how much more shall we be saved in his life. The life of Christ is the focal point for our redemption and our reconciliation with God. And Paul's point here is that it is the resurrected Jesus whose life we trade for. 
The, the life of Jesus was not something we can really trade for. Because we can't be sinless. We can't be perfectly right and moral in every point and view. But the resurrected Jesus who now comes to be within us, to indwell within us by virtue of the Holy Spirit, that's a life we can trade for. Because that's a life that then is not up to me and you to pull off. That's a life that's then not up to me and you to make all the right decisions. That's a a life where we begin to trade despair for hope and worry for peace and hatred for love and sorrow for joy and everything else it has in our lives and say, here, Jesus, you take it all and give me your stuff in return and let your life be the one that lives through me. And that's a life we can trade for. Today we remember his cross we remember his death we remember what it cost him and what it gave to us but we also rejoice we rejoice because we were reconciled to God through his death and we continue to be reconciled to God now in his life what does that mean to you today you you may have gotten all kinds of gifts over the last 48 hours or so Maybe what you wanted, maybe what you didn't want. Maybe you sent the wrong link in the text message and got something you weren't anticipating at all this weekend. But understand the greatest gift that has ever been given to all of mankind is the gift that was the most unfair, unexplainable, and unjust. Christ's life for you. Christ's life for me. That while we were weak, while we were ungodly, While we were sinners, while we were enemies, he paid a price. And God's love was demonstrated in the infant who would become king. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.